We are continuing our series entitled Defending Your Faith. And I want us tonight to focus upon one of the groups that has had an ignominious history among the Christian religion, and that is the Seventh-day Adventist. The Seventh-day Adventists. And the Seventh-day Adventists are a very, very interesting group. And thus far, we have taken the turn, as it were, from really taking an offensive approach in the first eight messages that we have given to you in this Defending Your Faith series to a more defensive approach. How would we defend our faith against those who would have major objections to what we believe? And in fact, those who would say they too are a part of the greater Christian religion. And therefore, we would need to have an answer if we do not believe them to be so. And so there are a number of groups that are flourishing around our country. You heard Pastor Henrich, as he mentioned, that over in Sri Lanka there is uh, Mormonism run rampant and there are other groups. He mentioned the Charismatic Movement and the Signs and Wonders Movement. There are a number of groups that are spanning the globe to present to you their beliefs about Christianity. And we have thus far, in this defensive approach, attempted to bring you a biblical evaluation, and with your help as well, as we've had a wonderful dialogue back and forth in these nightly series, we have talked uh, first about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and then we talked about Mormonism, and then last time we discussed Christian science. And you might ask me the question, uh, why would you go in such an order? Well, there is some semblance of order within the evaluation that many take regarding cults, and it usually is in a fashion of four major cults that are spoken about, at least historically that has been the case. Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, also known as the JWs, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons, and then Christian Science. And those have historically been the first three major cults that are usually discussed and evaluated as to what they believe, and I think so because they are so prominently placed in our world. And so we have discussed them in some detail. And now uh, we take an investigation tonight into the Seventh-day Adventists. Now, they have been uh, the fourth major group in which usually they are evaluated in that fashion. And yet there is some debate in fact, there's a large debate within the Christian community as to whether or not Seventh-day Adventists are really Christians. Clearly, with the JWs and the Mormons and Christian scientists, we know that because of our study, they are not true Christians. And in fact, unlike, for instance, liberal mainline denominations, you cannot find anyone within the JWs, within the Mormon religion, or within Christian science who are truly redeemed. You can't find that. Because by the very nature of what they say they believe, they cannot be Christians. Now, there might be someone who says, I want to be a 
sort of a misplaced missionary, as it were, going into these groups, maybe believing that they can somehow infiltrate uh, those uh, professed religions. But truly, if anybody says they believe what those groups profess to believe and do in fact believe, then they inherently cannot be Christians. When we come to Seventh-day Adventists, however, there are true believers within this group of professing Christians. And I want to say that at the outset. There are true believers within this group called Seventh-day Adventists. And that leads many people, many of the cult awareness groups, many of the theologians and scholars who study these sort of things, that, that leads them to believe that maybe Seventh-day Adventism really needs to be evaluated as to whether or not it is truly a cult or whether it might be, in some people's terminology, cult-like. And we want to discuss that tonight, and we're not going to spend uh, several hours doing so, and that's really to our chagrin, because there's much to know about this movement. But we are going to spend a few moments discussing them. And as I have in the pattern of these uh, discussions with you, I have brought you, in essence, uh, two main points about each and every one of these groups. And that is, first of all, their origin. And then secondly, a biblical evaluation of what they teach. And as you know, in the first uh, three groups that we have discussed thus far, I have given you the opportunity uh, in a scenario as though they were themselves knocking on your door and you were then on a defensive posture toward them as to what you believe. And I have really enjoyed that. And I think you have enjoyed that, at least those who have come up to me and said, you know, it really does force me to come to a place of deciding what passages, what theology, not only do I affirm, but what would I say to these people if they, in fact, were knocking on my door? If I saw them in the restaurant or in a grocery market or at the service station, what would I do? What if one of them was my neighbor? How would I respond to them? And I think this is a good thing for us to do all around, but I think especially with a group like this, Seventh-day Adventists, where in fact some of them may be true believers, it's all the more necessary for us to determine not only what they believe, but how, how we as evangelicals should respond to them. As I have done in this series, especially in these last several parts, I've given you their origins, normally starting out by telling you what the origins of the group are by starting as to what they are now and then going back a little bit. And I want to do that with this group as well. But before I do that, I do want to tell you that when I say that there are some who believe that this group is in fact a cult, those who believe that are very notable. In fact, there was a book that was written several years ago now by a man by the name of Anthony Hokema. He's a very, very respected theologian. He's a reformed theologian. I think he has gone on to be with the Lord at this point. But he wrote a book a number of years ago called The Four Major Cults. And, of course, Christian Adventism was the fourth major cult he believed was out there. And so he is one of those who notably says, I truly believe that this group is indeed a cult. There was, again, a number of years ago, another man by the name of J.K. Van Balen who wrote another book about the cults. And he, too, believed, and again, very, uh, very convincing in some aspects, 
that this group is indeed a cult. Uh, one whom I have had some fellowship with and who also has now gone on to be with the Lord John Gerstner wrote a book called The Four Major Sects. And he too came to the conclusion that Seventh-day Adventists are indeed involved in a cult. And yet, however, there are a number of others who don't believe that Seventh-day Adventists are a cult. Among them, and I think most notably, Donald Gray Barnhouse. Thank you, Skip. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who for many years was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who has now been succeeded for uh, over 30 years by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who is now the pastor at 10th. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse believed, after studying this particular group, that while they had some very, very bizarre tendencies and some unbiblical teachings, they could not be classified as a cult, not in the historical, classical sense of that term. One of his early associates and one who went on to be, become a very noted cult watcher, Dr. Walter Martin, who started the Christian Research Institute out in San Juan Capistrano, California, the CRI ministry, which continues to this day under the leadership of Hank Hanegraaff. Uh, he too came to the conclusion, unlike J.K. Van Balen and some of these others, Anthony Hokum and John Gerstner, he disagrees that this is a cult. And he has, again, some very persuasive arguments as to why, again, their teachings are in some ways very suspect, but cannot classically be termed as a cult. There are many, many others. I just give those to you to show you that there are some heavyweights on both sides of this particular issue as this group is being investigated. Uh, before our service began tonight, I was talking again with James about this, and I told him that it seems to me, after some of the study that I have done regarding Seventh-day Adventism, and actually having some relatives in my own family who are Seventh-day Adventists, that I think, again, there are some true believers in this group, and I personally don't think that you can brand the entire movement as a cult. I think there are some truly regenerate people, and I believe the movement as a whole seems to be orthodox on several of the major doctrines of Christianity. In fact, the major doctrines that I believe would push it through the threshold of not being considered a cult. I do, however, think that there are probably some uh, disciples of Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Adventists themselves, who probably have taken uh, the, the movement itself and pushed it to cult-like status. And indeed, there may even be some who would profess themselves to be Seventh-day Adventists who would be legalists. That is, they would say that there are a number of things that you must do in order to be a Christian. And of course, we'll talk about some of these in a moment. One of those, of course, would be that you would have to abstain from certain foods, notably meat, some of the Old Testament dietary laws. They might even go so far as to say, as the very term Seventh-day Adventists implies, that you, if you were a true Christian, you were to be a worshiper on a certain day. And of course, that certain day is Sunday, that is the Christian Sabbath. And there are some people like that. In fact, I know for sure 
that there are some people like that, because when I was one of the pastors at Grace Community Church out in Southern California, I counseled a young man who was gripped with fear because he had come out of Seventh-day Adventism and he had come to Grace Community Church and he had what uh, the world commonly calls panic attacks and he had them for years because as he moved out of Seventh-day Adventism and from his family, he began to worship on Sunday. I think I may have said a moment ago, Sunday, when I meant Saturday. And he was worshiping on Sunday at Grace Community Church and because of that, his family believed then he had departed from the faith. Because as they worship on Saturday, so they believe that if there are people who are worshiping on any other day of the week, then therefore they inherently cannot be Christians. Now, I believe that that is what some Seventh-day Adventists affirm. Now, whether or not they believe that that takes someone to the threshold of being a believer or not being a believer, that's the debatable point with many of them. Some of them clearly say, no, even though I believe it's right and best and even required as a command by God to worship on Saturday rather than Sunday, I don't believe that if you do not choose to do that, then you cannot be a Christian. But there are some apparently within that movement who do. And of course, if anyone believes that they, whether it's a worshiping on a certain day or doing anything else to merit salvation, then that is properly called, biblically called, legalism. And therefore, that cannot determine or define what a Christian is. So, with that as a background, let me give you a little bit of the history of Seventh-day Adventism. I will say that today the movement, while it has had its ups and downs, appears, at least on the surface, to be experiencing somewhat of an upsurge. Let me give you a couple of notes in that regard. It is now, these days, being investigated at least some of their uh, inner workings by even the federal government. The IRS, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the FBI and the Justice Department have all initiated investigations as to possible improprieties within uh, this particular group. And that has done its work to uh, confuse and to hurt and frustrate some within this movement. And yet it appears that even though some of those things are happening, the group itself is remaining strong in several areas. There's a growing faction within Seventh-day Adventism that uh, is much more theologically liberal, uh, maybe akin to what some of the liberal mainline denominations have become. There's another faction within Adventism that is roughly aligning itself with uh, sectarian or cultic groups. And that is true about this movement. And while there are some in this mainstream that we call Seventh-day Adventism, some of them becoming more liberal in their theology, some of them becoming more radical and maybe cult-like, there is a stream, there's a strand of Seventh-day Adventists who are extremely conservative, very conservative. In fact, in 1990, Kenneth Samples, writing in Christianity Today, says this, In the late 1970s, Seventh-day Adventism was at the crossroads. Would it become thoroughly evangelical? Or would it return to sectarian traditionalism? 
denominational discipline in the 1980s against certain evangelical advocates gave a strong indication that there is a powerful traditionalist segment that desires to retain Adventism's 1844 remnant identity. As well, the liberal perspective, with its emphasis on pluralism, appeals to many Adventists. While evangelical Adventism has lost ground in the 1980s, its supporters remain, though they are not nearly as prominent today. You might ask the question, how large is Seventh-day Adventism? Well, it has in many ways become quite large. The Seventh-day Adventist church claims today around nine million members worldwide. Now, that's a large number of people, nine million members worldwide in more than 200 countries of our globe, over 40,000 churches with 12,690 people ordained in active ministry. And as I was talking with James earlier, it is rapidly growing in third world countries, adding, listen to this, more than one new member by baptism every 48 seconds of every day. That's how fast this group is growing. From the church's beginning in the United States today, nine out of ten members live elsewhere. That is, elsewhere outside the United States in 206 other countries of the world. You say, well, where are the SDAs, as they are sometimes known, Seventh-day Adventists? Where are they headquartered? Well, they're headquartered in Silver Spring, Maryland. But they also op operate a number of international administrative offices. They operate 13 agencies of their general conference in both the United States and in the Philippines. One of their own is quoted as saying, Although the name Seventh-day Adventist was chosen in 1860, the denomination was not officially organized until May 21, 1863, when the movement included some 125 churches and 3,500 members. Now, in the United States of America today, there might be one church that would have 3,500 members. And so you can see it has grown from very, very small beginnings to over, as estimates are, 9 million people around the world. What do they really believe, at least in terms of their origins? How did all of this come about? Well, it's a very, very interesting beginning to this group. I want to give you a little bit of the historical background of how it started. It sprang up from what was called the Great Second Advent Awakening, which really shook the religious world just before the middle of the 19th century. It was very rampant in Great Britain and in the continent of Europe. And before long, people at that particular time were very much influenced by all kinds of teachings on prophecy and the prophetic notions of the end of the world. And there were many, many teachers, especially in Great Britain, who began to suspect that the Lord Jesus would soon return. Now, this, again, was in the uh, middle part of the 1800s. And they believed that when studying, especially the book of Daniel, and starting to really chart out some of the days that are listed there, some of the numbers 
uh, which are mentioned in Daniel's prophecy, that the Lord indeed might come back somewhere around 1843. And there was a, a man, a very young man at that time, by the name of William Miller, who was a Baptist minister, and he resided in Lower Hampton, New York. And he believed through some of this uh, prophetic teaching that he began to hear and himself began to study and try to understand that with this sweeping movement of the prophetic in the early 1840s, this William Miller himself began to teach that about 25 years from the year 1818, i.e. 1843, Jesus Christ would come again. Here's how he put it. Quote, I was thus brought in 1818 at the close of my two-year study of the Scriptures to the solemn conclusion that in about 25 years from that time all the affairs of our present state would be wound up. He went on to say, I'm fully convinced that sometime between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844, according to the Jewish method of computation of time, Christ will come and bring all his saints with him and that then he will reward every man as his work shall be. Now, he was a very persuasive man. And as I mentioned to you, he was a Baptist minister. So this particular group did not start from someone who was either irreligious or someone who had very strange and bizarre teachings outside the pale of Christianity as it was then known or understood. He was a Baptist minister. He was just trying to study his Bible. He was just trying to understand uh, the prophetic future. And so he began to speculate. And at some length after his study, some of his associates believed him to be right on the mark. And so they set the date of October 22nd, 1844 as the final date when Jesus Christ would return for His saints, would visit judgment upon sin and establish the kingdom of God upon the earth. Now, of course, you know what happened. They were wrong. But here's an interesting thing. Unlike the Jehovah's Witnesses, unlike the Mormons, unlike Christian science, William Miller and some of these others who were involved in this movement, even though, of course, Acts 1-7 and Matthew 24-36 and a couple of other passages say distinctly that no man knows the hour. It's impossible for any human being to correctly determine the time of Christ's return. Unlike so many of these other cults, this particular man and this particular group, commonly called the Millerites, admitted they were wrong. He, in fact, said this, quote, I confess my error and acknowledge my disappointment. Now, that's good. That was a, a very good thing for him to do. It's a good thing for any date setter to acknowledge that any date they set is bound to be wrong. Now, there may be someone who is not wrong when they set a date because at some time the Lord will come back. But probably the person who sets that date is not going to be able to tell anybody about it because as soon as he assumes that date is there, that date will be there and we'll all be gone. However, this particular man, William Miller, went on to say, tragically I think, I'm 
confessing my error, I acknowledge my disappointment, yet I still believe that the day of the Lord is near, even at the door. And I exhort you, my brethren, to be watchful and not let that day come upon you unawares. Well, now, there's some good in that, and there's some bad in that. The good in that, of course, is that we can all say, and we should say, to everyone around us, don't be caught unawares, right? We ought to tell every one of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we ought to tell the entire world, in fact, that since the Lord has said He will come back, regardless of the day or hour which no man can know, none of us ought to be caught unawares. In fact, the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 the very theme of that particular portion of Scripture tells us, be ready, be vigilant, be alert. Know that that day will come. It does not specify a day, but it says it will come. And the bottom line for all of us is that we must be ready. So he's right about that. The bad part about that is that it's good to say that, but it's bad to attach another date to it, which he did. And that was not good. He was reluctant, some say, but apparently because he believed that the Lord was in fact so near that he, along with some others, reluctantly endorsed what was called the seven-month movement or the belief that Christ would come on October 22, 1844, the tenth day of the seventh month according to the Karite reckoning of the Jewish sacred calendar. And there were some others, notably one of his disciples, Dr. Josiah Litch, who was a Millerite leader in Philadelphia, who wrote on October 24th, It is a cloudy and dark day here. The sheep are scattered and the Lord has not yet come. And yet, even though this was called the Great Disappointment of 1844, William Miller, who himself never referred to himself as a Seventh-day Adventist, believed that even though that particular date was wrong, there were some other dates to come. And this particular group began in earnest around the idea of prophecy and around the idea of date setting. Well, William Miller died. Of course, died not having seen the Lord come back. It was a fiasco. He died a broken and disillusioned man. But he was in some ways honest and forthright by repudiating at least the dates that had been set up to that time. Now, you would have hoped that he would have said, look, I've given you a number of dates. Some of the others in this movement have given you some dates. We ought to stop doing that and we ought to be on with the business of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, not knowing when indeed the Lord would come. But this group remained and they continued on with this idea of the prophetic. And there were a number of splinter groups. In fact, there were three large segments which formed the beginning of what we say now is the movement known as Seventh-day Adventism. In 1847, there was another group that declared and promulgated some writings of their respective leaders. Some of these leaders are Hiram Edson, O.R.L. Crozier, Joseph Bates, James White, and then the person that we would all associate with the actual founding of the SDA, and her name is Ellen G. White, who was the wife of James White. And so, she really began in earnest, once these splinter groups gathered together, what we now know today as Seventh-day Adventism. 
You say, well, why was she so important to this? Well, in many ways, she was a leading light and a star within this movement because she believed that she had been given some revelations from God. Now, that is why I think a lot of these individuals believe that this is a cult because it's attaching itself again to a human being, a sinner as their founder, and a person who is receiving, quote-unquote, direct revelations from God. And that sounds so very much like cult groups. The reason, however, I think this particular group is different is that while they do have a founder who said she was receiving revelations from God, in many ways, what she taught about the basics of Christianity were true. And as the the movement is known today as Seventh-day Adventism, they basically teach, in so many ways, the great truths of Christianity. Now, they have a lot of stuff that they've sometimes added in terms of the Christian life, but I think basically and by and large, this is a group which holds to the deity of Christ, the Trinity, salvation by grace alone, etc., etc. And I think... In some ways, we can see this group as having a very rocky beginning and then a group coming to a place of acknowledging its error. And even though they continue to have some strange teachings, it would be in some areas that would not be so crucial as to the death blow of naming it a true Christian religion. You say, well, what are some of those things in which they teach? Well, there are a number of them. Let me give you a few of those. And I really don't think that we're going to have that much time to be able to dialogue back and forth. And because I don't think the group itself uh, has the kind of uh, fatal errors for which we would need to defend ourselves, I do think, however, you need to arm yourself with some materials so that you can dialogue with some of these, especially those of of you who believe that the people you're talking with might very well be true believers. In other words... Uh, They might not need help in the area of their salvation, but they need desperately some help in the area of sanctification. And we need to help them. What are some of them that we could talk about? Well, of course, the first one we could talk about is the area of the Sabbath. I mean, that's obvious because that is the very thing for which they take their name. What do they say about the Sabbath? Well, I told you before that they believe that it's very, very important to continue not only the Ten Commandments, but, again, in some strange way, elevating the fourth commandment, uh, sometimes even above the others, although they certainly wouldn't say that, I think unwittingly they take the Sabbath law, the fourth commandment, and they take it and it seems to me they place it at such a high level, that's one of their tests of fellowship, that's one of their tests of someone's spiritual maturity. Now, if that were the case, what might we say about someone who would see the Sabbath as so very important. And again, as I mentioned, I don't uh, hope I confused you a moment. I hope I didn't confuse you a moment ago when I said Sunday instead of Saturday. What might we say to a group like this if we were going to talk to them about the issue of the Sabbath itself? Now, I know that that's a thorny question. That's a tremendous debate within the church, even apart from the Seventh-day Adventists. But there is at least one passage that I think I would go to that I would share with a Seventh-day Adventist 
And that is in Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. I think it would be well if we went to that particular passage and talked about that so that we might speak cogently and biblically to instruct Seventh-day Adventists. Now again, let me emphasize, there may indeed be some Seventh-day Adventists who place Sabbath-keeping, which for them would be Saturday worship, at such a level that if you refuse it, they, they might say you're not a Christian. Many of them would back away from that, but they would certainly say it's absolutely and incredibly important for the believer. And of course, you could understand, at least initially, <clears throat> why, they might, why they may say that. They may say that because it is one of the Ten Commandments. And that's a fairly strong argument, isn't it? You, you would say that you would not want to actually obey one of the Ten Commandments of God. You would say as a Christian that one of the commandments of God has been done away. Which one? And if so, for what purpose? Well, if I were to dialogue with them, I would take them right to Colossians chapter 2 and I would begin with a discussion of verse 16. And I would say to them, here's what Colossians 2.16 says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a what? A Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all of the pictures, all of the types, all of the things from our Old Testament, including dietary laws, including the observance of the Sabbath, are in Paul's words, a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Or we might say, Literally, the substance is Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. He's the, the answer to all of the shadows. If shadows are shadowy by the very nature of the term, and if substance means reality, means flesh and bones in this case, then Christ is the fulfillment of what all of those pictures, those shadows were pointing to. And one thing that I would want to say to a Seventh-day Adventist, is while I acknowledge that Exodus 20 and the Deuteronomy passage which speaks of the Ten Commandments are certainly there, and while I would say to you in full agreement that those commandments are reiterated, although not explicitly so, implicitly so in the New Testament, clearly the New Testament presents to me at least that the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, has been abrogated, has been set aside. And the reason that I believe that is because the Sabbath was a very important element in the life of a Jewish person. All the way back from God's creation of the world with His own resting on the seventh day, the Sabbath, that, of course, in God's economy was not because He was tired, right? It was, a, again, a way to explain what the Jews were to look forward to every time they took the Sabbath. They were continually looking forward to the Messiah. And then when we come into the New Covenant age, 
the age in which Christ is seen as the fulfillment of the Sabbath, we see Christ as the person who has now fulfilled the shadows of the past. And indeed, I believe the writer to Hebrews explicitly tells us that Christ is the fulfillment of the rest we've been looking for, for that is what Sabbath itself means, right? Rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering His Sabbath, His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have, we've had good news preached to us. That's the gospel of Christ, just as they also. It goes on to say in verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest. You see it there? I believe that if you want to talk about the Christian Sabbath, if you want to talk about worshiping God on a particular day from a spiritual viewpoint, I believe that we need to worship Jesus Christ who is the literal fulfillment, who is also the, the spiritual fulfillment of the Sabbath rest that that Jewish Sabbath was always pointing to. And I believe the rest that we have experienced now is the rest we have in Christ because of the work of Christ on the cross. And I believe that's exactly what the writer to Hebrews is doing. He's taking a, a literal thing, the Old Testament Sabbath, where someone was physically desisting from rest and was saying, I'm borrowing that, that analogy, that, that, that issue spiritually of the rest that the Jews incurred physically to talk about the person of Christ. And in a spiritual sense, when you're in Christ, when you have His atonement applied to you, you have, in fact, entered that rest. You say, hey, that sounds like that spiritualizing of some of those passages of the Old Testament. Yes, it does, and I admit it. And I do so on the basis of the fact that the writer to Hebrews does it right here. When the writer to Hebrews or any other uh, New Testament writer doesn't choose to do that, and it seems to me that there are those passages which will still have one day a literal fulfillment, then I'll go that way. See, I can go both ways. No problem for me. When it talks about the Christians of the New Covenant age in 1 Peter chapter 2 as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, and it borrows the language of the Old Testament referring to the Jews, I have no problem with that because if Peter doesn't have any problem with that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, neither do I. I better not have any problem with that. And as the writer to Hebrews says that we have a Sabbath rest, I believe it's a reference to what... Christ has done on our behalf and that we are resting now in our salvation in Christ. That's what it says. That's, that's what it must mean. Verse 3, For we who have believed entered that rest, just as He has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. For He has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. Therefore, verse 6, Since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day. And you say, well, what about verse 9? Because that says, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. What does that mean? 
Well, I believe what it's talking about is that there are still those who need to come into that rest. And I believe that's what the writer to Hebrews is telling us. Look, if you think you've entered that when you really haven't, there remains a Sabbath rest for you. You need to come into Christ by faith so that you can rest in Him. Resting, as it were, from all of your dead works, your labor. And you need to entrust your soul to Christ. And if you do that, if you come all the way into Christianity, then you've entered that Sabbath rest. I believe that is exactly what it means because the writer to Hebrews talks about people who have been exposed to the gospel. He said good news in here a number of times. They, they're exposed to the gospel and yet they've resisted it. They've resisted it for a time. And now the writer to Hebrews is saying, if you don't come fully to Jesus Christ. You may have been exposed to the gospel. You may have been in a place of worship. You may have had the word of God preached to you. You may have seen the good word of God. You may have seen the good works of the Holy Spirit. You may have seen all those things. And in the final analysis, you say, I'm not sure. I'm not completely convinced. That's why the writer to Hebrews, I believe, in a number of places, Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews 4, a number of other places, says, I warn you. And those are those famous warning passages. If you don't, after having that kind of exposure to Jesus Christ and to Christianity, if you don't come, then it may indeed be impossible for you to come. And I think that's exactly what Hebrews 6 is talking about. If you have all those experiences of that kind of worship and praise and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and all of those works, and yet you say, I'm not coming to Christ... The writer to Hebrews says, there's a warning here. If that's the case with you, then it is impossible for you to be made new by virtue of repentance. I think that's exactly what's going on in those passages. And so therefore, I don't believe that verse 9 of this particular chapter is saying anything other than a command, uh, an injunction, a warning to those to come to rest in Christ. I don't believe that Hebrews 4.9 or any other passages which might seem in a Seventh-day Adventist mindset to be talking about the literal fulfillment of the fourth commandment as binding on Christians today is therefore binding. Now, that's what I would say to them. You might say a number of other things, and I think that that's at least a cursory way of explaining to them why the legalism of saying you must worship God on a particular day is wrong. And I think Paul says that clearly in Colossians 2. You can't be someone's judge and say, you must worship on this day. And a lot of people will ask me, well, then why do virtually all Christians, except maybe Seventh-day Adventists and maybe some Seventh-day Baptists, and believe it or not, there are some people called Seventh-day Baptists who worship on, guess what? The seventh day. Very good class. Outside of maybe some groups like that, People will say, well, then why do Christians all worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, and not the seventh day? And what's the answer to that? Well, the answer to that is because historically, not biblically per se, but historically, the early church began a tradition of worshiping the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week on Sunday, because that was the day in which Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. And so historically, and even biblically speaking, we can see a reference to it because in Matthew 28, it says on the what? The first day of the week. 
It doesn't say Sunday because they weren't using that language on the first day of the week. The Apostle John even refers to that day and he calls it by his own terminology what? The Lord's Day. And that's why I refer to Sunday as often as I think about it. I refer to it as the Lord's Day. And it historically became that because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. Hence, He's the Lord and so it is His day, the Lord's Day. But, I'm not going to say to Seventh-day Adventists or Seventh-day Baptists, or if there were such a thing, Seventh-day Episcopalians, or any group like that, you cannot worship on Saturday. Why? Because if I did that, then I'd be in violation of Colossians 2, 16 and 17, because then I would be judging them. And so therefore, I say, if you choose to worship the Lord on any day of the week, in fact, in our contemporary evangelicalism today, there are a lot of churches that are going to a what kind of service? A Saturday night service believing that they can bring in unbelievers on a Saturday night who would not traditionally otherwise be interested in a Sunday morning worship service. You say, is that good or bad? It's neither. It's not particularly good if that means that the service itself is not exalting Jesus Christ and teaching the Word of God in an expository manner. It's not good if you don't do that. If that's your worship, it wouldn't be good to do something else other than those things. But it's not particularly bad if someone chooses to do it. And as I've said to you before, if someone comes into our church on a Saturday night, if we just said uh, by way of uh, television, radio, newspaper advertisements and word of mouth, hey, we're starting a worship service on Saturday evening. Would you like to come? And unbelievers started flocking to the Bible Church of Little Rock. Would that be bad? Of course not. But of course, as we know in much of modern day evangelicalism, if we had a Saturday night service that was fashioned exactly like our Sunday morning service, then we probably have less people on Saturday night than we would on Sunday morning. Because by and large, people aren't interested in that. And so that's what I would say to some of these Seventh-day Adventists. Now, there's one other. And I can see that our time is almost gone. And I have 14 other pages of notes that I'm not going to be able to come to. But let me say this. There's one other very practical element in Seventh-day Adventist theology, and it is the one for which many people come to me and say, what do I do with this? Because frankly, this isn't just an issue of Seventh-day Adventist theology. It's really what a lot of evangelicals are caught up with, and that is the area of diet, or that is the area of food consumption. And I want to share just a couple of brief passages with you as we close because I want you to gain a handle on this because, frankly, I think a lot of Christians, even outside the SDA movement, are tripped up on this and they shouldn't be. People are all the time saying, don't eat this, don't eat that, stay away from this, stay away from that. Now, most people within evangelical circles are not saying it as the SDAs are saying it. They're not saying it for religious purposes, spiritual purposes per se. Although sometimes when you hear the language, you almost, you almost hear someone saying, if you don't do this, you're not only not treating the temple of the Holy Spirit rightly, but you're somehow disappointing God. Now, they don't say that explicitly, but sometimes it sounds like a mantra of religion about the idea of food or diet or what you should stay away from or what you should definitely eat or this is healthy or do this or do that. It almost sounds like what Paul says in Colossians 2 is something we ought to stay away from, food and drink. You say, well, what does the New Testament tell us regarding this? Well, turn over to Acts chapter 10 and I'll share with you 
obviously what is both spiritual, that is God's intention in this regard, and also what is even physical regarding food. You know this very well. This is the Acts passage, Acts chapter 10, where Peter saw a vision. Verse 9, on the next day as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry. Now, I interpret that to mean that somehow in the next couple of verses, food is going to be mentioned. Now, I know that's profound, but I've been studying this passage and it seems very clear to me that something about eating is upcoming. While they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down. And you have to say that word very distinctly. A great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. I say that because one of my good friends, Phil Johnson, was teaching out at Grace Community Church. and He was using his King James Bible. And in the King James Version, if you have that, it talks about a great sheet knit at the four corners. And he was talking way too fast. And you can imagine what he said. And when he talked to me later, he said, I think I've disqualified myself as an elder. I said, no, just slow down. And so there was this great sheet knit at the four corners. And it was being lowered to the ground in this trance that Peter had. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. Now, I would classify most of those, those animals that were listed there as potential meat-eating kind of animals, wouldn't you? I mean, it seems to me that four-footed animals and crawling creatures, whatever that might be, it could be a reference to reptiles and certainly birds of the air. And a voice came to him and it said, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Obviously, he was a Jew and he was saying, in essence, Lord, I can't do this because the dietary laws of the Old Testament tell me to stay away from stuff like that. I'm not supposed to be a carnivore, so I need to stay away from this this animal eating. Verse 15, again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And in order for Peter to understand the message or that he was thick-headed, this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now you know why verse 17 says, Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind. I mean, he was saying to himself, Look, I've been doing this all my life. And now all of a sudden, in a trance, God has told me all this stuff is no longer valid, just eat anything? You say, eat anything? Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is New Covenant teaching. First Timothy. In fact, look at chapter 4. I mean, this is... I, In some ways, I I don't know how the church has missed this. I mean, so many people will say, well, I mean, I hear all this stuff and I'm not necessarily saying it from a religious viewpoint, but, you know, everybody says, do this, don't do this, eat this, stay away from this. And it's not just health reasons, but it's somehow uh, a mantra about food related to God. Chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. 
The Spirit explicitly says, verse 1, in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And you can tell from that context that whatever is coming up is probably going to be negative, right? Men who forbid marriage, and notice this, and advocate abstaining from foods. Now here... Obviously, probably from a spiritual viewpoint, from a religious viewpoint, but maybe also from a practical viewpoint, somebody was telling these people, don't marry, that's not holy, that's not good, that's not godly, and stay away from foods, some foods. And they had a list of foods that you should stay away from and foods that you should consume. And they're saying, stay away from these foods, which Paul turns right around and says, Foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. You see it there? You know what, folks? Eat anything you want. Doesn't matter. Let's let's not be hung up on food. What did I say this morning about the kingdom of God is 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 joy and righteousness and peace in the Holy Spirit, not food. I mean, think about all of the time that we waste regarding the issue of what we put in our mouth versus what we need to keep away from our mouths. You say, you're obviously not a medical doctor. Well, that's true, and I'm not even a nutritionist, frankly. You can just look at me and tell. But what I need to say is, beloved church, let's not become ensnared by stuff that we can't know explicitly from the Word of God is to be either avoided or eliminated altogether. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 4, for everything created by God is good. Now, did he say everything there? Everything. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Why, Paul? For it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. And then he really says, I tell you what you should be nourished on. Verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. He then says in verse 7, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. I didn't say that. He said that. The issue is this. If a Seventh-day Adventist comes to you and says, and as this sign out here as you're going to the airport in Little Rock is prominently now displaying, even though it's not the Seventh-day Adventist, it's the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, what does it say? Jesus was a vegetarian. As I heard one man adroitly said one time, maybe they should read their Bibles with their eyes open. (laughs) Jesus was not a vegetarian. John 21, he made breakfast for the disciples and part of the breakfast was what? Fish. Now, the last I checked, a fish was not a vegetable. And look, I admit, I'm speaking from a position of virtual ignorance regarding food. 
I guess it's because I read passages like this and I say, it's so easy to be distracted by this stuff. Just eat what's put before you, except vegetables, of course. <laughs> and just go on with it. I tell everybody, my life verse is Romans 14, too. And he who is weak in faith eats vegetables only. Look it up. It's there. I've just wrenched it out of its context, but it's, it's there. And one other passage and we'll close. Hebrews chapter 13. You say, what's the big deal? I mean, what ultimately is the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. People, again, could be so consumed by this. And frankly, my beloved relatives, who I really genuinely have affection for, are so incredibly in bondage to some of this stuff. I mean, if it's not for salvation, as I don't believe it is with them, it certainly is, in the way of sanctification, a bondage. People know far more about food, frankly, beloved, than their Bibles. So many people. And here's what Hebrews 13 says about this. Look at verse 9. This ought to end the entire argument. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. Notice this line, through which those who were so occupied were what? Not benefited. Now, take out one of the phrases in the middle and it sounds like this. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. You see? Now, there's a context here. And that context is very specific. But again, the principle is don't be hung up by foods as to what you put in your mouth or what you stay away from as though either for your salvation or for your sanctification, it really can amount to a great deal. I mean, I hear this stuff all the time. I hear somebody saying, stay away from sugar. And then I hear some other report coming out from the American Medical Association or the New England Journal of Medicine that says we're not having enough sugar in our system. I read an article one time that said, don't give your children chocolate before they go to bed. They'll become hyper. And then I turned around and I have another file of letters in my, in, of, of uh, teachings in my office where there's another article that says that's a myth. And I say to myself, this is endless. It's endless. Anybody can prove anything they want about anything related to food. Some guy with a white coat and a stethoscope can tell us anything and we believe it. The issue is not what you put in your mouth. That's not the issue. You know what the Bible says about that? Here's the issue with food. Don't be a glutton. That's it. With the highest voice I can give you. That's it. That's all. That's all that it says. That's all that it needs to say. Don't eat too much. Period. Paragraph. Move on in the Christian life. You say, why am I so exercised about that? Because my counseling room is filled with people who are consumed with issues related to food. And it absolutely debilitates them spiritually. I talk to people all the time who have what the world calls anorexia nervosa or bulimia, or people who are so conscious about the way they look and the diets that they have. 
And my answer to them is, here are these passages. Each of them need to be rightly, contextually interpreted. But in the final analysis, here's what they mean. Don't be hung up about food. Now, there's a very sensitive way and there's a way to work around these issues when you talk with someone like that. And I certainly do that. But when you talk with people, let's encourage people not to be hung up with the things that ultimately don't matter. And if the Seventh-day Adventists could hear this kind of message, I believe it would catapult the true believers in that group into an entirely different arena spiritually. In fact, I know firsthand because I've seen it, that even some of those who would say that they're committed vegetarians for religious purposes and for their ultimate sanctification, I've actually seen some of them sneak around the barn door and be those meat eaters that we saw. I've seen it with my own eyes. And I say, if you have to sneak around to do something like that, then why do it? It's not wrong to be a vegetarian. If that's what you choose, if that's, if that's what you choose to put in your mouth, that's okay. I'm not going to judge that. But it's usually not the non-vegetarians judging the vegetarians. It's usually the vegetarians judging the non-vegetarians because they're eating meat. And if it's Seventh-day Adventists or if it's other Christians, it shouldn't occur. Because food or drink are not the issue. Paul, Colossians 2.16. Amen? Well, I didn't plan on saying any of this. But it fit. Let's pray together. Father... We're so thankful for your word, even these passages which speak about the Sabbath and which speak about food. They're passages that you give us, Lord, because you want us to have a true and a real sanctification. You want us to have a sanctification that is tangible. And yet sometimes, Lord, people want to be so tangible about things that they really forget or otherwise obscure the joy and the peace and the love of our sanctification for the stuff that you can see and hear and touch and taste and feel. And Lord, I pray that in my own life and in the life of our congregation, you would not allow any of us to become so, so enamored, even if it's unintentional, with a, what we could call a sanctification legalism. Where you have to worship on a certain day. Or you have to eat certain foods or stay away from certain foods. Lord, I pray for my SDA brothers and sisters, those who are truly redeemed. And I pray that you would deliver them from the sanctification bondage. And I pray that if there is anyone here who believes themselves to be better, not, not necessarily even better than someone else, but just better themselves because they're staying away from certain foods. Lord, we could do research and statistical data surveys until the end of time and would not ultimately be able to prove anything because your word speaks against it. Your word says, eat everything because it's been created by God 
And it's sanctified by the means of the word of God and prayer. And so when we sit down at our meals, we thank, we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for giving us this food, whatever it is. And I eat it for your glory and your honor, because I know that it nourishes me to be involved in the real stuff of sanctification, love and joy and peace. And so, Father, I pray that each one of us would not judge the other. I pray that my words would not be perceived as judgmental, but just pulling us back more to center from maybe those who have become a little distressed about what someone else is doing or not doing. I'm reminded of what Pastor James said last week. We accept one another. I'm just praying, Lord, that we wouldn't judge one another based upon what we see or hear that someone is placing in their mouths for nourishment. Lord, thank You for our day. Thank You for the time to reflect and meditate upon these great truths. And may we reach out to these brethren and help them. And may we reach out to those within the SDA movement who are not brethren. And may we share with them how they can be delivered from sin and come to repentance and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.